0: Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast which covers economics, politics, and history. Today's topic is, did the president commit treason? The title is a bit of a bait and switch because the president in question is Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederate States during the American Civil War. Our speaker is Cynthia Nicoletti, who is a legal historian and law professor at the University of Virginia School of Law. Cynthia is the author of the book, Secession on Trial, The Treason Prosecution of Jefferson Davis. I chose this topic for today's podcast because the facts of the case relate to the ongoing legal battles for Donald Trump. For those of you in our audience who are a little rusty on their U.S. Civil War history, Abraham Lincoln won the 1860 presidential election, and within a few weeks, 10 southern states seceded from the Union. The Confederate states held democratic elections and chose Jefferson Davis as their president, and he was their commander-in-chief of the Confederacy during the Civil War. Davis was captured at the end of the war, and he was indicted for treason under penalty of death. I want to learn from Cynthia whether Davis committed treason. Could Davis get a fair trial? Should his trial be in a court or by a military tribunal? Alternatively, should the union have skipped the prosecution and simply shot him? Davis's case turns on Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which is the exact same section that has been applied by Colorado and Maine to prevent Donald Trump from being on their presidential ballot. Are the courts the proper place to adjudicate these questions or instead, should they be determined on the battlefield by our elected representatives or by the voters? Buckle up. Cynthia, can you please begin with your six minute remarks?
1: I wrote this book about Jefferson Davis's treason trial that never happened in the aftermath of the Civil War. Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy, was arrested, and the government planned to put him on trial for treason. And the aim of the trial was to cement the government's victory and demonstrate that the Union's theory of the war was legally correct. Now, his case was supposed to be a test case on secession. It was supposed to be the first trial in a string of trials, it's very clear that Davis had committed treason within the meaning of Article Three of the Constitution, which just says that levying war against the United States is treason against the United States. So what is unclear is the question of his allegiance. That's the real issue because treason is a crime of allegiance, right? So if I were... A Canadian and I attacked the United States, I could be guilty of any number of things, but not treason. The question in his case is whether or not secession of the southern states, and particularly his home state of Mississippi in early 1861, does that remove his United States citizenship and therefore remove his duty of loyalty to the United States, make him a foreigner, essentially? It seemed really easy when the government arrests Davis, which is in May of 1865, to convict him. This is right after the war ends. They think about the prospect of trying him for war crimes against the U.S. So he might be involved in Lincoln's assassination or for war crimes at Andersonville Prison or this question of treason. And it turns out to be not so easy to convict Davis, the cabinet with President Andrew Johnson discuss his trial a lot, but they can't really figure out what to try him for. Public anger against Davis, which is really palpable at the end of the war, fades quite quickly. Davis's lawyer raises the prospect that there's the potential that this case could end up with the wrong outcome. So they could get potentially a judge or a jury that might acquit Davis or get a hung jury. It's really bad for the government if they can't manage to convict Jefferson Davis of treason. The attorney general of the United States thinks that they really can't cook the books in terms of trying Davis. So they think about the military tribunal. They think about trying him before jurors who've already said that they think he's guilty and things like that. And the attorney general says, we really can't do that. He is very invested in Seeing rule of law return in the United States, and he's worried that the war has sort of eroded the rule of law in the U.S. And he really is against trying Davis in a way that's going to ensure his conviction. What happens four years later is the government does eventually drop the case against Davis.
0: President Lincoln was elected in November 1860, and within a month after his election, the southern states seceded from the Union. South Carolina was the first, and that was followed by the rest of the Confederate states within a couple of months. The state legislatures voted overwhelmingly to secede from the Union. In January 1861, Mississippi voted to secede, and the next week, Jefferson Davis, who at the time was a U.S. senator from Mississippi, implored the Senate to let the South leave in peace without war. All the representatives and senators in the U.S. Congress from the seceded Confederate states resigned, except for Andrew Johnson. President Lincoln took the position that the Confederate states had not seceded from the Union because it was unconstitutional to do so. Lincoln said that in a democracy, elections matter, and that the losers can't just leave. Lincoln made the argument that a majority of the Southern whites wanted to remain loyal to the Union And that the people who wanted to secede were a loud minority. Lincoln's characterization of the popularity of the Union in the South was a fiction. Lincoln announced that the Confederate States were still part of the Union. They had never left. And then when the war started, the Union was at war just with these bad apples. The critical issue in Jefferson Davis's treason trial revolved around that question. Did the Confederate States secede... Or was the Civil War a rebellion led by some bad apples?
1: So I feel like there's a couple of different fictions, right? So one is sort of the legal fiction. The whole idea of the Union's theory of the war is that secession is illegal, so it never happened. And so we get this insurrection by Southerners who are just sort of individually waging war against the United States. This is an illegal conspiracy to commit a big act of violence. They didn't secede. They're still there. This is just a rebellion. And it's crucial that the whole theory of their prosecution of the war is that it's illegal to leave this union. And then they're also using tools that are derived from international law to put down the rebellion. So They impose a blockade, they engage in prisoner exchange, all these things that you really only do in a war. You're not doing that with a band of rebel. They're using both the instruments of international law and the instruments of domestic law. They're using both of those legal theories during the war. So there's only one important decision that the Supreme Court decides during the war, <laughs> but it's a biggie, which is surprise cases in 1863. The Supreme Court sanctions that legal fiction, that the states are both in the Union for purposes of US domestic law and they can't secede. The Constitution does not allow secession from the US and use the instruments of international law that traditionally you can only use against a foreign country. If it's international law, you have to have two nations. And so the Supreme Court says Yeah, you can use the instruments of international law and you can use the instruments of domestic law and the Supreme Court sanctions that legal fiction. The other fiction is political fiction in the sense that Lincoln, does he actually believe that it's only an extremist band of rebels who managed to, I don't know, hijack every state legislature and put big armies in the field of people who are willing to die for the Confederacy? There are certainly Southern Unionists. He does say that there is a groundswell of unionism, and he maintains that. But as you say, that seems actually sort of hard to believe.
0: Let's talk about those prize cases that the Supreme Court decided in 1863. Here are the facts. New Orleans was a major port in the Confederacy, and Lincoln decided to blockade it, which is sort of bizarre to blockade your own port. The federal government could close the port, which is its right as a sovereign. A blockade is a term of art used in international law. Some privateers from the North tried to go around the blockade and traded goods with the South. Some Northern privateers were arrested, and the U.S. government took their cargo. The case ended up in the Supreme Court that concluded that the federal government had the right to impound the merchandise and that the blockade was legal.
1: Congress essentially licenses cutting off trade with individual states in this act in July of 1861. The attorney general says to Lincoln, you should not say that you are blockading the ports. You should just say that you're closing them as a matter of U.S. domestic law, The problem is, is that he uses the language of blockade. And actually what he says in the blockade proclamation is really slippery. They end up using the language and the tools of international law because they're worried, right, that the British are going to come in on the side of the Confederacy. They're going to recognize the Confederacy, something like this. And the British are on board with that because those are known rules and the U.S. can't just violate them. The U.K. can't violate them either, whereas if the U.S. just says as a matter of its own American law, oh, we're going to close off the British or we're going to close off this port or that port. That means that the UK is going to have to be bound by whatever our America says the rules are, right? There were rules about international law and about blockade, which the British knew that the US can't overly manipulate.
0: The trouble with the prize cases is that the government wants it both ways. They want to benefit from domestic law when it suits them and from international law to push back against the British. And this is relevant in the Jefferson Davis treason case because the critical question is whether the Confederacy is a separate country. Next topic is why were the Americans fighting the Civil War? Nikki Haley was asked that question in New Hampshire a couple of days ago, and she denied that the war was fought over slavery. Abraham Lincoln said exactly the same thing at the war's outset. Lincoln said that the war was being fought to preserve the Union and not to eliminate slavery. He took that position for political reasons because he wanted the border states to stay in the Union. But this was another Lincoln fiction, and the Confederate states assumed rightly that Lincoln was planning all along to undermine slavery whenever he could.
1: Here, I don't think that this is a fiction. Here, I would draw a line between political choices and legal constraints. I do think that Lincoln is anti slavery. He's not a racial egalitarian by any means, but I think that he thinks that slavery is wrong. And I think that he thought that throughout much of his life. He understands, right, that the American constitutional system actually allows the federal government and the president in particular very few powers to eradicate slavery. He says to the Southern states, and I think this is accurate, I can't interfere. I don't like slavery, but I don't have any power to end slavery in the United States. The only power that the federal government has over slavery is potentially slavery in the territories and places that the federal government can control. He seeks to reassure Southerners on that basis. And so he says in his first inaugural address, I don't have the power to interfere with slavery where it exists. And that is not my purpose. I'm only talking about sort of tinkering with it on the margins. Southerners are kind of paranoid about this. The Dred Scott decision had just come down a few years earlier, right, where the Supreme Court had said Congress and the president cannot interfere with slavery in the territories. They don't have the power to outlaw it. Lincoln disagrees with the Dred Scott decision and pretty much indicates that he's not going to follow that.
0: The next topic is Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. When I first read it in junior high school, I expected to read something like the lyrics from a song by the police, free, free, set them free. But instead, the Emancipation Proclamation reads like a legal document.
1: It's a big disappointment. It's horrible. <laughs> yeah, totally.
0: Growing up, Lincoln was my hero. And then you read the Emancipation Proclamation as like a bonded denture. It's legally used to the max. And you're left wondering, what is he talking about? And what he says in the Emancipation Proclamation is that he's not freeing all the slaves Lincoln is only freeing slaves where there's union military control. And I want to bring this back to Lincoln's fiction that the states never seceded. For those union-supporting American citizens living in the southern states among these bad apples, how is it possible that American citizens have given up their rights to hold slaves? What are you talking about, Mr. President? I'm a citizen with rights under the Constitution. No, the slaves remain my property. Mr. Lincoln, it can't have it both ways.
1: Lincoln would first say, I totally can have it both ways because the Supreme Court said I can in the prize cases. (laughs) So, yeah, the Emancipation Proclamation is a big disappointment. You're expecting sort of Declaration of Independence 2.0. You're expecting lots of grand sweeping statements about freedom being a natural right. And there's none of that. It's a legal document. And I would say here's another place where secession does come into play because the basis for the Emancipation Proclamation is international law. He doesn't touch slavery in the border states. He touches it in the states of the Confederacy. Let's say I am a loyal unionist in the Confederacy. And here, this is going back to your point. What about Lincoln's fiction that there's like a whole ton of White Unionists who are just being held down by the secessionists. Well, if that's true, their slaves are also being freed by the Emancipation Proclamation. It doesn't make any distinction between whether or not you're loyal to the Union or not. Just if you live in Confederate territory, all the slaves are free. And the only basis that Lincoln can do that, the legal basis for that, has got to be the law of war.
0: Lincoln gets assassinated in April 1865 just as the Civil War is about to end. John Wilkes Booth and his co-conspirators kill Lincoln, and they also attempt to murder Secretary of State Seward and Vice President Johnson that same night. The country is stunned and confused. Nobody knows what's going on. How could this second-rate actor kill the President of the United States? It's totally mystifying. Jefferson Davis must have been behind the conspiracy to kill Lincoln. And then a month later, Davis is captured.
1: It is not good for Davis. Lincoln gets assassinated in this. I mean, it's at least a conspiracy. But, you know, there are a number of people who are involved in this. And the Lincoln conspirators are rounded up and they get immediately tried and executed in military tribunals. They're civilians. They get hanged immediately. It's really important for Davis's lawyer to stretch out the timeline because there's so much anger after Lincoln's assassination that it's really easy to convict the conspirators. Davis's lawyer, his main goal really early on is to make sure that Davis doesn't get caught up in the conspiracy to assassinate Lincoln. Or I should mention, in trials for war crimes at Andersonville Prison, there's a woman who's a mother of somebody who was really starved and tortured at Andersonville Prison. And she sends Johnson a picture of her kid. And she says, anytime he thinks about letting Jefferson Davis go, He should pull out that picture of her kid and stare at it. This idea of connecting Davis to either Andersonville or the Lincoln assassination seems like the easiest path to convict him. So Francis Lieber, who is the author of this code of the law of war, one of his jobs in 1865 is to go through all of the Confederate records and try to find evidence that would connect Davis to the Lincoln assassins. And he doesn't
0: find evidence of it. Winston Churchill was asked at the end of the Second World War what they should do with the former Nazis. And he said, shoot them. And the Americans said that we should have a trial at Nuremberg with U.S. Supreme Court Justice Robert Jackson as chief prosecutor. Some questions are best answered on the battlefield and not in the courthouse. What do you think about trials for the leaders of the vanquished?
1: That's such a good question. I think if you want it to have a meaningful impact, I think you should maybe shoot them. I'm going to go straight to hell for saying that.
0: Supposedly, Abraham Lincoln, just before his assassination, suggested that he would be pleased if Davis somehow fled the country. But Lincoln's successor, Andrew Johnson, did not agree with him. And after Davis was captured, Johnson instructed his attorney general, Speed, to indict him.
1: Davis's lawyer says this. If you're going to conduct a trial, that means something, it should be something other than just sort of a show trial, like that of Lincoln's conspirators. And I think once they commit to putting him on trial, the U.S. attorney general says, well, if you're going to put him on trial, you're going to have to do it in a fair way. We had a war that killed 700,000 people. He's worried about violence. One of the roles that he wants to play is, I want the rule of law to return. That's one of his main goals. And I would say that that's actually really one of the things that makes it quite tough to try Davis is this real concern in the United States with returning to the rule of law and making sure that Davis's case isn't just sort of trumped up.
0: Years ago, I had a book club with Judge Richard Posner. I asked him about the Civil War case about Milligan. Here are the facts. An Indiana congressman and other local Confederate sympathizers conspired to free Confederate soldiers held at a fort. Amongst the conspirators was a Union spy, and Milligan was arrested. Milligan was convicted at a military tribunal with the penalty of death. Milligan's lawyers approached President Lincoln in the spring of 1865 to see if he would pardon him. Lincoln told Milligan's lawyer to relax as the civil war was about to end and that matter would likely be dropped. The war ended, Lincoln was assassinated and his successor, Andrew Johnson, decided to proceed with Milligan's execution. But Milligan appealed to the Supreme Court that decided that Milligan needed to be tried in a federal court and not with a military tribunal, because the courts were open in his home state of Indiana. I asked Judge Richard Posner what he thought about this famous Civil War case, and he told me that if the war was ongoing, then shoot Milligan. If not, let him go.
1: I love that story. Now, of course, Milligan happens once the war is over. Right. So, (laughs) and I think that is not a coincidence that the court is able to say those things about the return of the rule of law and how war doesn't interrupt the constitution in the United States. They're able to say that once the war is over. And actually Milligan's brief is recycled from the brief that they wrote in favor of Davis and other Confederates. And so Milligan gets cited today as sort of this grand palladium of the United States believes in the rule of law, even during wartime. It's easy to say that once the war is over. And so I guess this sort of goes to my point about if you're going to convict Davis, how are you going to do it? There's that moment with the Lincoln conspirators and the assassination. And they try those conspirators before a military tribunal right away and they get convictions and they hang them right away.
0: During World War II, a few German-American citizens trained by the Nazis were dropped off by a U-boat on Long Island to cause trouble and they were promptly arrested. There was a military tribunal and they were shot. Courts were open on Long Island. It goes back to the idea that when there is a war on, then the government will do what it wants.
1: These decisions are not a coincidence. In April
0: 1865, the Civil War was about to end. President Lincoln spoke with General Grant about what terms would be an acceptable surrender. A week later, the Confederate General Robert E. Lee And General Grant met at a farmhouse in Appomattox, Virginia, and Grant offered him very liberal terms of surrender. The Confederate soldiers, if they gave up their military weapons and promised not to fight again, would not be prosecuted for waging war. They could keep their horses and their sidearms. They were offered parole, go home and be good citizens. How do these liberal terms for surrender for the Confederate soldiers, relate to the treason charge against Jefferson Davis.
1: There's this issue with parole. Well, how far does that extend? When the Union is talking about trying Confederates for treason, they are thinking about trying the civil officers. Davis is the first one. They also arrest all of Davis's cabinet. Well, what about the military officers? What about Robert E. Lee, who's much better known today than Jefferson Davis, right? Grant actually steps in with President Johnson and says, well, I think that my parole, saying that all of them could leave the battlefield, including Robert E. Lee himself, that extends beyond just leaving the battlefield. That means actually we can't try them for treason. That effectively, we have given immunity for levying more Against all the Army officers, anybody in the Army.
0: Next topic is venue shopping for Jefferson Davis's trial. Venue is super important because you want to be tried in a place where you can find a sympathetic jury. Davis wanted a jury in the former Confederacy. The U.S. Attorney General wanted to win, but he wants Davis to get a fair trial. Convicting Davis in a sham military tribunal like the Lincoln Assassin Conspirators or in a place like Washington, D.C. will look ridiculous and might turn Davis into a martyr. The Judiciary Act of 1790 required that the trial must be in a place where the crime was committed. For Davis's treason trial, it must be in a venue where he committed treason. Davis had not been to the northern states during the Civil War, and he spent almost all of his time in the Confederate capital of Richmond, Virginia. And that is where the trial was planned to be held.
1: This is, I guess, both a bug and the feature of the U.S. Constitution. <laughs> so it's not just the Judiciary Act of 1790 that talks about this. It's the Constitution itself, right? So Article three of the Constitution and the Sixth Amendment say that you have to be tried in the place where your crime was committed. Now, the Confederate armies went many places beyond Virginia, right? So they went to Pennsylvania, right? They went to Gettysburg. But Davis was not everywhere the armies were. He commits his crime at his desk in Richmond. And so in accordance with the Constitution, if he's going to be tried where he committed his crime, Richmond has a Confederate population. The government sort of tries many ways to get around this problem. One of the prosecutors says, well, hey, Virginia during the war used to also contain West Virginia. So how about we try him in West Virginia? I actually think that's not a bad option, right? Because it's still the same state, potentially. And West Virginia was pretty unionist. And so the government also thinks about, well, if the Confederate Army was in Pennsylvania, that's where the actual act of violence that you need for a trial.
0: Why is the government trying to move the case to a venue where Davis cannot get a fair trial? If they move the case to D.C., for example, there's no way that Davis would be able to find anyone on the jury to acquit. Why do you view the venue selection as a bug.
1: That's the feature. What do you want jury trial to do? I think we want a jury trial so that your local community, your peers are the ones who are deciding on your fate. That's great. I mean, that's why I like jury trial. I'm a lawyer. I'm an American. I believe in that. The problem is if you have a locally contained act of treason that's geographically located in a particular place, then you have to go back to that place to get a conviction. Now you got a problem that this local community is particularly predisposed to find Davis not guilty. This is the bug. This particular local community is going to be particularly prejudiced in Davis's favor. And so what the government eventually does is they require that Jurors take the ironclad oath, meaning not only that they have to swear that they were not only presently loyal to the United States, but always have been. It's supposed to be that only unionists can serve on this jury. Not all jurors are always truthful.
0: You said something interesting in your own self identification. You said that you are a lawyer and an American, but you did not say that you were a citizen of Virginia. In 1865, when Davis was indicted, self-identity by state was much more important than being American. This gets to the core of Jefferson Davis's defense. If you asked Jefferson Davis, how do you self-identify? He would have said that previously he was a U.S. Secretary of State and had represented the state of Mississippi in the U.S. Senate. But Davis would have said that he was a citizen of the state of Mississippi. And that his state legislature, Mississippi, had seceded from the Union in January 1861. The Confederate states had held a valid constitutional convention, written their own constitution, held democratic elections, and that he, Jefferson Davis, had won the presidency. He would argue that he identified as the president of a separate country. There was no treason Because he did not hold any allegiance to the United States. In fact, he defended his new Confederate country against an invasion by a foreign power. Jefferson Davis did not seek a pardon from US President Andrew Johnson after the war because he was the president of a different country. Where is the treasonous crime?
1: I'm a Yankee. I'm a transplanted Northerner, but I will say I came to UVA initially as a student because I was interested in the Civil War and I didn't have to go to a separate country to study it. To the larger point about secession and Americanness and how the war sort of established this, I think it's so ingrained, the idea of the cohesion of the nation. If you think about the two big legal things that come out of the Civil War. One is that slavery is abolished. And the second is that the nation is a nation. Davis really is sort of hell bent on, I'm not going to apply for a pardon. I have my integrity and I believe in secession and I want to be sort of a spokesman for the cause of secession and the Confederacy. His lawyer is much more realistic and says, you have a wife and four small children, maybe you don't want to be hanged. I will say, if his argument is, I believed that secession was legal, and I still do, well, that's not a defense, right? You can believe that secession is legal, but the crime of treason does not require that you think it's treason.
0: I know Davis's lawyer would be weary of putting Jefferson Davis on the stand because they suspect that Davis would behave like Samuel Jackson in that Matthew McConaughey movie.
1: Time to kill, yeah.
0: Yeah, a time to kill. Did you kill that man? Yes, and they deserve to die, and I hope they burn in hell. And in a Jefferson Davis trial for treason, a Richmond jury would expect Davis to explain that he had no allegiance to the United States as the president of the Confederacy. The jurors had lived in Richmond during the Civil War. Everybody they knew believed they lived in a separate country. I cannot imagine that the state could persuade 12 men to convict.
1: Unless the oath really works, right? And you get only unionists on the jury.
0: You can't have it both ways. You can't have a jury of only unionists and then tell the world that this was a fair trial. You would lose public opinion in the South and turn him into a martyr.
1: So that's really interesting. So one thing that sort of has been running throughout this conversation is that you sort of pointed to um, a lot of fictions, a lot of duality of thinking. And gosh, this is such an indictment of my profession. There's a lot of that in law. Like And it's just sort of allowed. There's a difference between legality and morality, right? And sometimes there shouldn't be, and there is. The government is hypocritical. And I think the answer is yes, but they get sort of boxed into corners in ways that maybe they don't anticipate. Looking back at this now, this is such a mess. Why don't you just shoot him?
0: The genius of the American system is that there are certain questions that are legal in nature and others are political. And these questions get properly sorted. The real trouble arises when the legal profession decides to interfere in the political realm. And we're facing this hurdle right now with Trump. For Jefferson Davis's treason trial, there would be two judges. There's a local federal judge, Underwood, and Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, Salmon Chase, who's riding the circuit, who will also sit on the bench. Justice Chase was a political animal and planned to run for president. And Chase saw no benefit for him convicting Davis.
1: The distinction between individual goals, like the whole government's goal, is sort of all over this case. The prosecutors, they try to figure out ways to tell the public if this case goes sideways, oh, we didn't want to have anything to do with it because they're concerned about their own career. So there's a duality of purpose with a lot of the individual actors who are concerned about their own careers, maybe more than the government's case. Shockingly, these are people with an ego. And Chase is one of these people, right? So he is perpetually running for president. And in 1868, when Davis's case is sort of up again, he is also running for president. And This time he is thinking he wants to run on the Democratic ticket. And he does not want... He doesn't want to be in the position of having convicted Jefferson Davis. And so what he really tries to do is to run away from this case. After the 14th Amendment is ratified in the summer of 1868, he knows Davis's lawyers and he gets together with one of them and he reads the 14th Amendment aloud. And Section 3 of the 14th Amendment says that you're disqualified from office if you've participated in the rebellion. And He says, I read Section 3 as saying that that's the only conviction you can have for treason, right? That that removes the idea of independently trying somebody for treason who is subject to Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And this is, dare I say, a surprising reading of Section 3, that it would also cut off the possibility of treason prosecutions to Davis's lawyer. But Davis's lawyers take that suggestion and they run with it. And they present that argument to... Chief Justice Chase, who finally manages to make it to trial, and then he accepts that argument. That's not what you're supposed to do as a judge, is tell the lawyers what to argue.
0: For the benefit of the audience, I want to step back and explain what we're talking about. Here is Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. No person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of President and Vice President, or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who have previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature or as an executive or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution of the United States shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort To the enemies thereof. But Congress, by a vote of two thirds of each House, remove such disability. This is the same section that was used to remove Trump from the presidential primary ballot in Colorado and Maine. This section three of the 14th Amendment has been so rarely applied. And here it is, central to both Trump and Jefferson Davis's cases. Salmon Chase was the sitting Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court when the 14th Amendment was passed. And Chase interprets Section 3 to limit the U.S. government for an act of rebellion to only disqualification of certain government positions, no more death penalty for treason. The Civil War ends, and the former Confederate states elect new representatives to the U.S. Congress, and no surprise. They're all former Confederates, and they include the biggest players, like the Confederacy's Vice President, Stevens. What happens?
1: Article 3 does allow Congress to remove the disabilities. They just refuse to seat them. And they can do that. Thaddeus Stevens sort of comes up with this when the Confederates start showing up as being elected from these states. He just says, you know, each house can decide the qualifications of its members, and they just refuse to seat them. But then, after a while, they do start taking some of these former confederates in Congress. Congress just sort of gives up after the end of military reconstruction in 1870, and they will seat these people.
0: This is a fascinating aspect of the political process. You have both short and long-term goals. You want to win the next election, but you want a functioning democracy that includes reintegrating the South into the country. The Democrats recognized that white Southerners will be their political allies for a long time. And the Democrats want and need these congressmen in the House and Senate. And the Republicans are boxed because they want a functioning national democracy, even if it means including their political opponents. I mean, I
1: think this sort of goes to your overall point about democracy and secession, has sort of run through the whole conversation, which is after the war, the Republican Party and Congress have two choices. One is that they've got to reconstruct a union where they reintegrate the Confederates in some way, or they've got to sort of keep them under military rule, maybe indefinitely. Who knows? But if you believe in democracy, you've got to find a way to rebuild a bridge with these people. They're going to be in the country. Now, you can either just sort of put them under the boot of Republicans for a generation, a hundred years, forever, or you've got to figure out a way to live with them. The choice they made was to reintegrate them pretty quickly.
0: Compare Trump versus Jefferson Davis as it relates to Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. This is a provision that was drafted with the purpose of preventing Confederates from getting into Congress and other offices and which failed its original purpose. And today, that very same provision is being used against Trump to prevent his re-election.
1: There are a lot of sort of technical questions about whether or not Section 3 of the 14th Amendment applies.
0: How would you compare the application of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to Jefferson Davis and Donald Trump.
1: To prove that Davis committed treason is actually really easy. The secession part makes that hard because, you know, it's not clear whether or not it removes his duty of loyalty. In order to have treason, right, you need levying war against the United States. He's the commander-in-chief of the army, right? And there are massive acts of violence. I mean, we have the war. I think this is harder with Trump in terms of saying whether or not there's an act of violence, there's the riot at the Capitol. And I think that certainly counts as violence, but what exactly is Trump's role in causing that? I mean, I think there are some first amendment arguments that he didn't incite it directly. One thing that really strikes me about these two trials that is very weird is in some ways, I think it was hard to convict Davis because the act of treason was so big. It's a war. And it's the whole region that's involved in it. And so then it becomes hard to convict him in any Southern court. And potentially with the act at the Capitol, maybe it's too small. Some people, I think, want to say that Donald Trump's involvement was not enough or that the act of treason was not enough. Maybe Jefferson Davis is too big to jail. Maybe Trump has the opposite problem.
0: Abraham Lincoln was denied being on the presidential ballot in 10 of the southern states in the election of 1860. Now, Lincoln was not going to win any of the slave states in that election, but it shows that the desire to remove your political opponent from the ballot has precedent. Today, in the blue states of Colorado and Maine, they're trying to get Trump off their presidential ballot. History repeats itself.
1: I read Section 3 as probably disqualifying Trump. But I think that's a legal matter. My sense of this is that the Supreme Court is not going to throw him off the ballot. Ultimately, they don't want to do that because they think that that saps the political process or the right to vote, even if the legal remedy says, we're going to preclude the democratic process from operating here. I mean, that's what the 14th Amendment does. It says, whether you got the votes or not, you can't have this office. But I think politics is going to be allowed to operate to make that decision politically, even if the law here probably says that they shouldn't have the room to do that. In the United States, we leave a lot of things up to the political process. And so this sort of goes to a lot of these questions that you're raising about secession. If the local populace has the democratic expression that they want something like this, I think they were dealing with that in the secession crisis, that ultimately they're denying local populations the opportunity to leave if they want. And I think that American democracy is sometimes in conflict with legal rules like the 14th Amendment that says this should be precluded.
0: President Andrew Johnson ultimately pardons the officers of the Confederacy. And as a result, there was no trial for Jefferson Davis. The former president of the Confederacy, Jefferson Davis walks and he dies in his own bed. I end each episode with a note of optimism. What are you optimistic about as it relates to the decision not to try Jefferson Davis?
1: I'm kind of optimistic that the case ultimately was papered over because it was really too dangerous. The outcome of the case really could have been potentially quite catastrophic. I don't know that Chase... Did the right thing and sort of dissembling and trying to avoid it. But I do think that potentially we could have gotten the wrong outcome. And then there was the potential of actually having another civil war. And I think that they really palpably thought that there could have been violence again. And if Davis had been convicted and hanged, that might have happened had he become sort of a martyr for the lost cause. The idea of the rule of law coming back into the United States and that we do actually have a decision that wasn't dangerous on the books is actually a good thing. Avoidance was the right outcome in his case.
0: Thanks, Cynthia, for joining us today. If you missed our previous podcast, the topic was, Did Oswald Act Alone in Assassinating JFK? Our speaker was Gerald Posner who is the author of the book entitled Case Closed, Lee Harvey Oswald and the JFK Assassination. Gerald worked for years researching this book and has investigated the major conspiracy theories related to the murder of JFK. This year is the 60th anniversary of JFK's assassination. The podcast is split into two parts. In part one, we discussed Lee Harvey Oswald's psychological makeup, his time in the Marines his decision to move to the Soviet Union, and his work to support Fidel Castro. We reviewed all of Oswald's movements on the day that JFK got shot from the moment Oswald woke up and grabbed his rifle from the garage to his arrest after murdering the Dallas police officer, J.D. Tibbet. In part two, we discussed the events at Perkland Hospital, JFK's bizarre and unprofessional autopsy, Oswald's murder by Jack Ruby on live television, Oswald's KGB file, and the mob's role in the conspiracy. I would now like to make a plug for next week's podcast with Patrick Ruffini, who is the author of the book Party of the People, Inside the Multiracial Populist Coalition, Remaking the GOP. I want to learn from Patrick how the Republicans will persuade Black and Hispanic voters to join their white working class brethren. You can find our previous episodes and transcripts on our website, what happens next in com? Please subscribe to our weekly emails and follow us up on Apple podcasts or Spotify. Thank you for joining us today. Goodbye.